Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And He sustains all things by His wonderful Word. When He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Long ago... God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. God has been speaking through prophets or messengers, that is, other people, for a long, long time. As people of faith, we say we do best when we listen and internalize, learn these truths and use them in our lives that are revealed to us in Scripture. Hebrews says it's good to remember that God speaks in many and various ways. Some people want to limit God speaking to one certain group of people or only through one particular description, but the Bible is full of images and descriptions for God and for Christ and how God is working in us through the Holy Spirit. Our United Methodist tradition has long endorsed this celebration of this diversity of images, of how we can understand God and Christ and the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Our United Methodist Book of Discipline is the place where we have our doctrinal standards, as we call them, and where we talk about how we do faith and theology together. It talks about how we best understand Scripture. I want to read to you just a few of those statements. Here's one of them. As we open our minds and hearts to the Word of God through the words of human beings inspired by the Holy Spirit, faith is born and nourished. Our understanding is deepened and the possibilities for transforming the world become apparent to us. Or in another place, it says, Our doctrinal standards affirm the Bible as the source of all that is necessary and sufficient unto salvation and is to be received through the Holy Spirit as the true rule and guide for faith and practice. Those statements are much longer in the book of discipline. They go on to remind us that when we study Scripture alone or together, it's good to draw on tradition what other Christians have said before us, to draw on our own experience, how we have experienced God at work in our lives or speaking to us, how we use our minds or our reason so that we can think deeply, learn all we can about what's being said, and then see if we can discern what God is saying to us. You may remember, if you were here last month, we were using as part of our service an affirmation of faith that recounted our core values one of those, we said that the Boston Avenue Core Values encourages us to embrace a reasoned approach to faith and Scripture. Now, I want to read to you just one more statement out of the book of Discipline. 
I think it goes right along with this passage from Hebrews where this author is reminding us how God has spoken to us over the years. The Book of Discipline says the close relationship of tradition, experience, and reason appears in the Bible itself. Scripture witnesses to a variety of diverse traditions, some of which reflect tensions in interpretation within the early Judeo-Christian heritage. However, these traditions are woven together in the Bible in a manner that expresses the fundamental unity of God's revelation as received and experienced by people in the diversity of their own lives. I think you can hear this stream of thought that Hebrews has and how it flows in a similar vein to what our book of discipline says about how we experience Scripture and how we can draw on it. And even though we can see a variety of images, that we can find a unity that flows throughout the Bible and throughout Scripture that can unite us and draw us together. Hebrews wants us to recognize who God is and who Christ is and so the author uses this wide variety of images to illustrate just look at the passage today and when we do we will realize that there are 10 different images names or descriptions of Christ in these first four verses did you notice that the author uses son heir creator Reflection of God's glory, exact imprint of God's being, sustainer of all things, one who's purifier of sins, who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, and one who's superior to the angels. When we're doing theology or thinking about God or Christ or the Holy Spirit and how we're related to the divine, it's great to remember there's not one right answer, there's not one image, but there are many and various images, as the author of Hebrews says. The Reverend Dr. John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist movement. He wrote a lot of sermons and a lot of treatises about who we are as Methodists and how we approach things and understand faith i want to read you a few of the things he says because this sort of sets the tenor and the direction and the tone for all of methodism he says as to all opinions which do not strike at the root of christianity we think and let think in another place he says though we cannot think alike may we not love alike May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion? Without a doubt, we may. In this, all the children of God may unite. They may assist one another forward in love and in good works. And then just one more, he writes, Always remember the essence of Christian holiness or Christian life is simplicity and purity one design one desire that is entire devotion to god but this admits of a thousand degrees and variations wesley understood as he traveled around england that not everybody had had the same experience in church or with god they were coming from many and various backgrounds and he wanted all of them to know 
the love of God available to them in Christ. So he continued to teach this and preach this throughout his life. This letter to the Hebrews trumpets this rich diversity of ways to think about Christ and to understand or image Christ in our lives. For the next eight weeks, we're going to be working through the book of Hebrews, looking at all the different images this author uses and all the different angles at which he approaches who God is and what God has done in Christ. In the next few minutes before we finish, I want to look at just one of those images that he looks at today. It's in verse 3 where he says, Christ is the reflection of God's glory. The reflection of God's glory. Here we are on World Communion Sunday. You heard Reverend Campbell praying about how people around the world are celebrating communion and praying for one another as Christians, and praying that we can be in unity, and where we are not in unity, that Christ or God might bring us together. Of course, we're all going to be affirming that around the table of Christ, Christians can gather, even if they use different languages or different styles of music or different styles of worship or emphasize different images for Christ that we can gather together, we can become one around the table of Christ. And even if they worship in ways that we might not even recognize as worship, still I am sure that we will all agree that Jesus Christ is the reflection of God's glory. The idea of glory in the Bible has to do with God's presence or light or radiance comes from a greek word doxa d-o-x-a doxa means brightness or radiance or splendor so calling christ the reflection of god's glory points to christ bringing god's presence or shining forth the light of god into our lives The early Christians proclaim over and over that God was at work in this Jesus of Nazareth. And they're trying to make sense of how this Jesus who walked among them can also be the Christ, the very revelation of God or the reflection of God's glory or the exact imprint of God's very being. But they proclaim it nonetheless over and over and invite others to join them, to join us around this table of Christ. One of the most powerful moments I had just before COVID was when a group of us went to visit the Holy Lands. I had opportunity to visit across Israel and into Jordan and back. Toward the end of the trip while we were in Israel, we got to go to a place they call the Garden Tomb. It's a possible burial place for Jesus. It's a beautiful garden, olive trees, plants, flowers growing. But you come in and kind of walk through the garden until you come down to a lower place and above you is a large stone wall. And out of the rock they have carved tombs. The little door you step through, you have to step up to get to it, but then you have to bend down to get into the tomb. 
you step into a little antechamber, and then there before you are carved what looked like two, maybe we would think benches, stone benches, but they're long enough where you could place a body. It's the possible place where the very body of Jesus was placed after the crucifixion. But we each had a turn to step in there and contemplate that for a moment. Then we regathered, still in the garden, but outside the tomb in a small room for Holy Communion. We remembered the words Jesus had said, those things he had spoken to the disciples that were there with him about his body and blood, about his life and death. And so we remembered those words, prayed together, received the elements, and a silence fell across our group. We had a sense, I don't think it's too strong to say, a sense of God's presence or that we glimpsed God's glory among us there in the garden. So close to death and yet in light of the resurrection remembering the tomb is empty. The promises of God are still before us. May we each know the glory of God even as we come to this table today. Amen. And thanks be to God.